Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books Network. It's your host, Bernardo Batislazo. And today we have uh, Peter Capelli talking about his latest book, The, Be- the Future of the Office, Work from, from Home, Remote Work, and the Choices We All Face. Peter Capelli is George W. Taylor, Professor of Management at the Wharton School and Director of Wharton Center for Human Resources. He's also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and since 2007 is a distinguished scholar at the Ministry of Manpower for Singapore. Peter, Peter, thank you ever so much for joining us at New Books Network. My pleasure. Good. Um, Shall we start our conversation with our usual question for NBN? which is if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became an an academic and interested in this area of human resources. You know, uh, I think for for most of us, there's just a whole lot more serendipity in our career path than we ever are allowed to say, especially when we're applying for jobs, right? You have to pretend that you knew what you were doing all the way along and that this was a path you took. Um, I think like a lot of my colleagues, I thought I was going to be a lawyer, At the time I was in college, if you were good in the social sciences or histories or things, you went into law. And if you were good in science, you became a doctor. And that was kind of it. Those were the preferred tracks. I never really thought about being a professor. I got a scholarship to go to England. And uh, I was there and I discovered they wouldn't let you just goof around. You had to enroll in a degree program. So I did. And I was studying labor economics. And then uh, from there, I didn't have my thesis done at the end of that period. So I was offered a job as a postdoc at MIT and I went there. And before finishing my thesis, I ended up involved in some projects about what was happening to unions and things like that. And then I woke up at age about 28 and I was a professor. Um, So it wasn't particularly planned. And I think I've always been interested though in uh, in the world around us and, and particularly the world of uh, the workplace, because uh, I think these things, you know, really matter. So I was much less interested in theory um, and in methods in those questions and more interested in the practice around us. And, you know, this particular topic of the pandemic and what we might learn from it is the biggest story of a lifetime, right? I mean, this is just enormous change that's happened in society. And I was being asked by people, what do I think about this? And would you say something about it? And I did that enough that I figured I might as well just put it together and hence the book. Excellent. Yes. And, and so who was your audience when you were putting the, the book together? Who were you thinking of? You know, I think I always write for the same audience, which is the kind of uh, intelligent uh, you might say that in the U.S., the intelligent New York Times reader kind of person, you know, so somebody who is interested in these questions, not practitioners per se, but people who are interested in the 
the broader implications of a lot of these developments, interested in the policy questions. I always thought they were more important than the practical questions. So it wasn't really written for people who have to make these decisions inside businesses and things. Um, but it ends up if you can answer the questions more broadly, you can, you're effectively answering them for the practitioners as well, right? And, and I've never been particularly interested in being a, uh, uh, a kind of advocate. Uh, you know, you should do this. I'm much happier pointing out what the problems are and not telling people what to do. So that's what I've done here. I think I'm just trying to outline what I see the issues are and uh, what kinds of problems they might raise, how you might think about it. And after that, you're on your own. So that's, <laughs> that's what I did. Right. But nonetheless, there, there is a little bit in the, um, in, in, or I felt that there was a little bit in the book about um, shareholder value concerns and, and driving and justifying this, this decision from a shareholder value perspective. Would, would that be um, fair? I think, you know, in the U.S., so this is largely a U.S. story. The experience around the world is a little different, but, you know, for better or for worse, we in the U.S., I think, have a, a history of kind of driving the debates uh, elsewhere. And in the U.S., you know, the employers have all the power. Uh, and so we're kidding ourselves if we think that, uh you know, things are going to change just because the employees want them to change, right? So if things don't work for the employer, they're, they're not going to happen. So um, I spent some time in the book, which is maybe a little different than what you usually hear in the business uh, press, thinking about, okay, what will work for the employers? Not because I particularly like employers better than employees. It's just because as we say, they have all the marbles, uh, they have all the decision power, and if it doesn't work for them, it's not going to happen. So so that is true. I'm trying to think about what are the issues from the employer's perspective as well. They're a little more complicated than they are for the employees. Yeah, it's fair enough. But I, I mean, you, you, you mentioned the, the, the role of unions, and we have seen a significant drop in, in union power in the last uh, 30, you know, since the 1980s. Um, but nonetheless, I'm, I'm, I'm <clears throat> coming back to this this um, idea that sometimes, you know, employees they vote with their feet. You know, if they don't want to do something, or there is a policy that it's not overall appropriate, or or you know, a change or a culture, or, or or well, not not a culture, but a change that is that is that is not really fitting, then they will simply. You know, not go along with it, and, and you know, passive resistance, not necessarily active resistance, as, as in the union movement. Well, you have to have uh, an opportunity to go somewhere if you're voting for your feet, right? So, if we have a very tight labor market, then employee interests um, matter, and there may be some of that in the current environment in some particular areas. You see it in technology, for example. The reason that a lot of the Silicon Valley companies were kind of advocates for more work from home positions. I think, frankly, is because they thought that uh, if they didn't do it, their competitors were going to, and then their competitors would be able to hire their own people away. But it's a quirky market, right? In technology, it's individual contributors. Uh, these are people who are highly skilled, they're in demand. There are a relatively small number of big companies employing them at the high end anyway. And, uh, you know, that labor market is very strong. When you get outside of that, you know, it's not so clear. So if you look on the East Coast, for example, and you look in the banking industry and investment banking and the big money places, right, those employees make even more money. But uh, for some reason, their interests, um, you know, just are not carrying the day, right? So the employers and the banks in the East Coast have all said, no, you're all coming back to work. They've, for one reason or another, been able to all kind of hold the line on that. Um, either they all felt the same way or they 
conspired some unstated way to do it. Um, so you see, you know, you see some divisions. Silicon Valley is kind of pro, let's think about alternatives. And New York and the banks are saying, no, you're all coming back to the office. So um, there's some diversity there that we have not seen in typical practices, I would say. But, but nonetheless, um, if, if I am not mistaken, um, Apple, who is a company that has invested heavily in, 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 in their new office building, um, actually tried to make or, or made a returning to, to office work mandatory. Yeah. Um, no, and, and that's, that's um, it's kind of outside of that framework in a way. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and on the other hand, you look at the companies that are kind of seen as kind of leading the change in terms of working remote Google now, right, which was the famous you be in the office all the time company and Twitter and Facebook. And at the same time that they are allowing their employees, or at least seem to be allowing their employees more freedom to work from home, they're also snapping up commercial real estate. They're buying it at a frenzied pace. So I don't know what to make of that. I don't think anybody quite knows, uh, but it does give you a sense of how influx they are, that they're both buying more offices at the same time they're telling at least some of their employees, you don't need an office, you can work from home. So I don't think we know, um, which in some ways makes it interesting, right? Because uh, the companies, I think, themselves don't know what they're going to do. Um, and that's, you know, that's always an interesting uh, time. I think once they figure out what they want to do, it's not particularly interesting, right? And it's just uh, questions of execution. But at the moment, I don't think they know. Excellent. Yes, uh, indeed, we're, we're still, you know, seeing this rollout and this um, coming and going, going and whether we've finished or we haven't finished the, the pandemic or whether we're going to have another wave or, or not. And, and um, so, so, so it's interesting how, how these things are, are rolling out. So coming, coming back uh, or, or going back to the book, um, there, was, there was another concept that, that, that you used and which is related to the com- uh, part of the conversation that we had. And, and that has to do with uh, the division between white collar and blue collar. And uh, I, was, I was wondering, as I was reading the book, to, to what extent this broad definition of office work as white collar is still relevant in a service economy where you have, as, as you just mentioned, you know, these huge differences within the service economy between banks and, and, and IT companies. Yeah, the, um, the distinctions in, in the U.S. in particular are quirky because there are laws behind them. So when we talk about white collar and blue collar, that's a kind of U.S. expression. Um, It's also another variety of that, which is the same idea, sort of, is hourly and salaried employees. And there are laws that protect the hourly employees in a way that they don't protect the white collar employees. And at the time these laws were drafted in the Great Depression, the New Deal of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the idea was, the assumption was, that office workers did not need any protection. And the reason was they were kind of seen as part of the organization, and uh, the companies were quite paternalistic about them. For the most part, those people had lifetime employment, um, and you know they were treated pretty well inside the office. The hourly employees were treated pretty badly, And so those laws protect hourly workers, not white collar workers. So for example, if you want your employees to work from home and they're hourly employees, it gets quite difficult to do because you have to pay them for all the time they're doing anything. You know, white collar workers work for a while, stop, take care of the kids, um, take the dog for a walk, come back, work into the evening. You can't do that. If you're a blue collar worker, you start working in the evening, it's overtime pay. Um, You have to provide them with safety equipment and chairs and all that kind of stuff that are ergonomic. So the division between blue collar and white collar um, is more than simply the division between could your job be done at home 
versus could your job be required to be in the location. Although it is probably fair to say that most blue collar workers are doing jobs which could not be done at home uh, and that most white collar workers are doing work, well, more white collar workers are doing work that could be done remotely. There was a a study uh, done early in the pandemic that found that about 40%, no, I'm sorry, more than that, 70% of the people whose jobs could be done outside the office were being sent home to work remotely in one way or the other, right? And for for hourly employees, of course, very few, right? They were on the front lines of the pandemic in grocery stores and retail places, you know, they were exposed to the virus and white collar workers were at home. It raises a very important question, and maybe this is where you're going. If after this, we start thinking about opportunities for people to work remotely if they want, which sounds like a pleasant thing for white collar workers, what are we going to do for the blue collar workers? And it generates a pretty enormous inequality, right? Because um, we have this wonderful perk for office workers, but if you're working with a machine or something, you get sort of nothing. And, um, you know, particularly if you'd like people to believe you're all in one organization, we're one community here, that's a pretty big divide all of a sudden, right? And, and I think that you've uh, hit the nail on the on the head when, when you're talking about uh, inequalities, because um, within those frontline uh, workers, or, or, or another way of looking at it, was workers that, or employees that were able to work remotely, and those that, regardless of whether they're blue color or, or white color, had to remain face to face. Yeah. And within this second group of face to face, by the nature of their work, you also, you know, you have some within the service economy, like uh, doctors and nurses and and so on. Others that, that you've mentioned, like grocery workers and, or, or people who are in logistics and, and so on, and, and, at the, and as well as, as immigrants, which is a, a big thing between, between Mexico and, and the U.S. Um, because of the work that they are doing in the U.S. and because it was very, very important the the income that they generated for for Mexico it's as it's the third year running that uh, remittances between the U.S. and Mexico break the annual time high and and they are much higher than foreign direct investment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, migrants are are very very loyal and and they actually increased the the amount that they were sending because of the of the you know, uh, the wage differential, they, they, usually the, the amount that is sent, it's because yeah. of the perceived uh, income differential between the, the, the countries. But, uh, but as they perceived that Mexico was going into a, a stronger, stagnant position, yes, or decreasing growth, as, as it only, as before the pandemic, it had a, it was already in a contraction. Um, migrants increased above their normal threshold the number of remittances that they were that they were making. So, you know, and this a number of these people were very much uh, in face to face situations and without uh, you know healthcare and without a, a, a number of things that make the situation of the migrant, particularly of the illegal migrant, uh, more um, in, unequal than, than than everybody else. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, there are some white collar jobs which are not great jobs that people were able to work from home. Call centers, in particular, right? So uh, you may know this, probably do in in England anyway. They were academics were referring to call centers as the new dark satanic uh, workshops, right? Uh, and they can be pretty awful, right? Everything is constrained and you know, you're reading scripts and things. Um, but some of those people and some of those jobs were sent home as well, uh, not because the employers wanted to, of course, do any of this. It's because government regulations required it. You either, even after the pandemic was underway, you could bring them back, but it was quite expensive to do that because 
You had to put in place various social distancing uh, practices and ventilation and things. And I think for most employers, they said it wasn't worth uh, doing. And they may be right, especially if you didn't think this was going to go on for a while. But it is, you know, it is an interesting uh, problem because the whole let's accommodate people with work from home thing it doesn't apply to everybody. It is a kind of narrow slice out of the workforce. And um, even within those people who could work remotely, not everybody wants to do it. And that's an interesting problem, right? Because we often speak as if everybody wants to work from home. You know, the data that I review a little bit in this book, it's a surprisingly small number of people who want to pick up and move to um, you know, Owaka or, you know, go to Santa Fe or something um, and just leave their office altogether. It's a pretty small proportion of people. It's surprisingly large, maybe a third or so of people actually want to go back to the office, at least largely. Um, and within the population that wants something different, it's, you know, most of the discussion is driven by people of middle age who have kids, right? Because those are the ones that we or maybe we have the most sympathy for, you know, because they have child demands, which we think are particularly important. So it, it does complicate things quite a bit to recognize that the people we're talking about here have quite different interests. They don't all want the same thing. And so thinking about policies that might help everybody uh, becomes quite tricky. Indeed, I, I would like to, to, to pick up on the issue of gender and, and child care in uh... And, and obviously implicit in, in, in that is uh, mostly coming out of, um, um, of of a particular age group when we are in, in reproduction age, um, most people. But um, the book has five chapters, um, and, and let's go back a, a little bit to that. Um, the first one is COVID-19 experience, what can we and can't uh, learn from it. Chapter two is back to the future, how remote work works. Chapter three is how remote working alerts the future of work. In chapter four, managing the transition, the importance of planning. And chapter five, the opportunity, how to make sure we don't miss it, uh, as well as a conclusion, uh, which is looking past our own offices. So um, could you tell us about how you, you came to these topics and decided in structuring the book in, in this way? Well, uh you know, I think, uh, as you probably know, when you're writing something like this, uh, it kind of evolves, right? Uh, you, th you start with an outline and then you end up throwing it away. And, you know, the introduction is the very last thing you write once you figure out what it's actually said. So I think a lot of these topics uh, became clear once I started uh, to write about them. And I wasn't thinking about them at the beginning. You know, this very last uh, chapter, which is about sort of the opportunity for employers uh, here, um, is something I really hadn't thought about at the beginning. But the opportunity question is, if you've shut your offices down for a year or so, um, the people who work there are shaken out of their old routines quite a bit. And if you really thought it was important to change the way you operate, um, this is a good time to do it. Uh, as well as the fact that people coming back after a year, they don't, we don't quite instantly fall back into our old way of operating. And we don't, we're not instantly as productive and effective as we were before. There's a little bit of mental disengagement that, that goes on. So, you know, employers could do something about those things if, if they want. I'm not sure that we're seeing it, to be honest, uh, right now. I don't know that employers are taking that all that seriously. And in fact, that slightly disappointing that, that at least what I think is going on, at least in the U.S., is uh, a lot of employers have just started to slowly bring people back in and more or less going back to the way things operated before, which is, you know, is unfortunate, I think, because we're missing opportunities, not only to maybe work better, but to deal with the kind of emotions and mental health of the people coming back. You know, it's a, quite a traumatic period for lots of people. Um, you know, a lot of people died. A lot of employees lost family members or struggled quite a bit. Not everybody, but some of them. And, you know, the first thing they want to do when they come back, and 
the reason employees have any interest in coming back mainly is they want to see their colleagues, right? And they want to talk about what happened to them and how their lives changed over this period. And, you know, I think a smart employer would give people some time to do that and some space to reconnect with people. I'm not sure we're paying an awful lot of attention to that, unfortunately. But what about new ways of, of working? And, and as you were um, just now and when I was going through through the book, um, the, the, the comment from one of my nieces comes comes to mind where she's she's an architect and uh, she was you know very, very disappointed and that that was how she put it in in saying well we're being asked to go back to the office uh just after the holidays and it's and it's sad and i say what and i said why um i said well you know it's so old, so old-fashioned, and having, and, and she said, you know, we've had this opportunity to see another way of working, and it seems that they have been deaf or, or blind to this. So what could be those new ways of, of working, as you do go into some extent in, for example, in, you know, how to make hybrid work uh, work, and, and so You know, I think the first thing on the employer side, and again, the reason we're spending so much time talking about the employers is they're the ones with the power to make the decisions, right? Uh, the first thing I think advice to employers is, have you figured out what you learned during this pandemic? You know, the experience in most of the world is enormous surprise, right? That we sent people home to work and they actually got everything done. Uh, I haven't heard too many employers complaining that it was, you know, a real mistake. Uh, oh, my gosh, everything was a disaster, which is kind of remarkable when you thought about it, right? We had all these systems in place in the office and decades of uh, efforts to try to get people to be productive and effective in an office context. And we got rid of all that. We just sent you home and things seem to have gotten done anyway. Uh, how could that possibly be? What do we learn from that, right? And I'm not so sure what we are taking away or whether we're taking away the right thing from it. You know, my sense is when we ask people what they liked better uh, about it, well, first of all, we don't ask that question enough, but lots of things appear to be better to employees. If you look at attitudinal surveys and things, they're more committed to their employer. They like their supervisor better, you know, all kinds of things, right? And if you think about it, why would that be? Well, one reason, and we, we were all in this together, right? It was a unifying event. In some cases, we were trying to keep the businesses going. In others, we were trying to keep not only that, but our communities going, you know? Um, and there was a sense of purpose, which was quite important. There was also a sense that we were in this together uh, and that the bosses and the hourly employees were all facing some of the same problems. And that's a unifying thing. The other thing which gets less attention is that we gave employees a lot more control, right? There was a lot more trust of them. They were not, as we say, micromanaged. Even if you wanted to do it, you couldn't do it for employees who were working from home. So we said, you know, here's what needs to be done. Uh, go do it. Uh, and the employees figured out how to do it, often on their own schedule, right? So that's the different thing. They weren't doing it, start at nine, five o'clock, I stop. You know, they might start at eight in the morning, work for a while, take a break, go for a walk, come back, start working again, stop, do the laundry, uh, come back. They were getting everything done. Typically, the evidence suggests slightly longer days if you look at the starting and stopping time, even with no commuting but they were getting everything done on their own schedule, right? So what do we learn from that? Well, they liked it better. Everything seemed to get done. So as your niece is saying, um, you know, the employers are saying in some ways, okay, that was fine. Great. Uh, we appreciate all your help. Let's, let's get going again. And the employees are saying, or many of them are saying, well, if it's fine, why are we going back to the other arrangement, right? And I think this is the first problem for employers. They should figure out, okay, what did we actually do that was different? I don't think they quite understand uh, this trust aspect of it, right? Um, and is there some way for us to continue that? If we think it's important for people to be back in the office, we need to explain why. 
right? Because we told them everything was fine. Is it not fine? It could be they're right. It could be some employers say, you know, everything did get done, but that's also because business was down. We were doing sort of the simpler things. Uh, we hadn't had to innovate or do any big restructuring or things that are harder to do. Um, and so now we got to do that stuff and it's harder to do. And, you know, we need you back in the office. But if you don't make that case to people, I think your employees are going to be quite irritated at you uh, for not listening or not paying attention if you don't have a good reason for bringing them back. Even if you do want them to come back, I think it's sort of incumbent on the employers to say, well, why can't we give the employees more of what they say they want, which is mainly some control over their time, right? We don't have to allow everybody to relocate to some other part of the world and never see them again. Not that many people want to do that anyway. It doesn't suit lots of jobs. But can we accommodate the greater flexibility in terms of their working time, right? Um, and I think it's sort of incumbent on you to do it. As you said earlier, is there a stick if they don't do it? And there might be. I mean, we're hearing from recruiters that um, candidates are asking for this. Uh, and there are some contexts, um, like the field of law, where I think we really are seeing some changes. I'm happy to tell you why I think there. Um, but uh, I don't know that the employers are embracing it. I think they're kind of, um, so far, still kind of resisting it. And it's happening at the margins. I think, understandably, maybe the the employers were thinking about rolling out systematic practices about a year ago when they were thinking everybody would be back um, by, as we say, Labor Day, the first week of September. But they were thinking Labor Day 2020, not 2021. <laughs> uh, and it's not even back now. So I think to some extent they are, as we might say, just shy about this. We don't want to roll out something again and then it all gets postponed. Um, but I think the bad thing is I think maybe their energy around it has dissipated and we are going back to the office by default. Um, you know, we're bringing people back slowly. We haven't introduced a new policy yet, uh, but pretty soon everybody's going to be back in the office. You know, the interesting data that I've seen since I wrote the book is data from companies that collect information from card swiping in offices, you know, where you have a badge and you swipe and, and that's a very good indicator of who's in the office, right? And the offices in the U.S. as of September were about one-third full, which might not sound like a lot, except before the pandemic, you know, offices were maybe only 80% full at the peak, right? And in some cities, in the Texas cities, for example, it's over 50% full already, and that was in September, right? So a lot of companies are already pretty far along. The U.S. Bureau of Census said at its peak, about a third of American workers were working from home. It's down to about 11% now. So we've already got a lot of people back and not that many companies have rolled out systematic policies as to what they're going to do. To what extent is this um, result of decision makers of around employers also being part of the phenomenon? And you said we've, we've shared this, 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 this um, event all together, uh, or, or in in the ways that we've uh, you know talked about, for the people that have, for most people that have had to work from home, or to work um, or to learn remotely, it has been imposed. And and for full disclosure, I think we we should say that in academia, in, in most developed countries like the UK and the US, there is some degree of leeway for people to, to work from home and and it's certainly something that is uh, quite common uh, people opt or not in, into it and I've, I've also uh, you know in early parts of my career I, I, I worked in, in distance learning so um, but it is this this um, thing that it has been an an imposed experiment, an imposed situation, and there is frustration alongside the other, you know, more personal 
crisis of of losing loved ones or not being able to to see loved ones or socialize or feeling frustration because you are not getting into the um, gossip of the office and you you can't see your 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 progression moving in 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 any way or finding about new jobs or 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 whatever or other things that that you might have uh, um, systems uh, to social systems to 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 do it no and and um we don't have either the social systems or the technological systems to in place to be able to do that in in, in some way yeah i think that's right uh, you know i've become more and more uh convinced in my old age here that um the values ideology and sort of predispositions of the leaders are hugely important so you know, you might think that during this pandemic, um, the people who are running organizations started to get more sympathy with the rest of the employees, right? Because you're all kind of in this together. Um, but in fact, uh, you know, for a lot of employees, working from home made their lives much easier. But if you're people in privileged positions, which, you know, includes me and a lot of academics, that's not necessarily true, Right. So if you have children and both, you know, and you're trying to juggle a job and your kids were trying to be home at school, it was it was pretty tough. But if you could not have worked from home, it would have been a disaster. Right. You would have lost your job and being home in that sense makes your life much, much easier. If you're somebody in a privileged position, being at home is actually more difficult. In the office, you had assistants, you had a staff of people who could do things for you. It's hard for them to do that stuff remotely. You know, being in the office was, you know, actually probably easier uh, for you. So, you know, we didn't have quite the same experience. And so I think one of the things that we see pretty clearly is that the people at the top are much more interested in getting everybody back to the office than are the people in the rest of the offices themselves, right? So there was a survey done by the Slack company that, you know, the Slack channel tech folks. And at least they say that they surveyed managers and executives and asked them about work from home. And then they surveyed, you know, regular employees. And the managers, executives, disproportionately 76% or so, uh, said that they thought it was important for people to get back to the office. The regular employees thought not so much, right? Uh, And the other thing that they found was that the managers and executives were not really consulting their employees on this. So about a third of them, only about a third said that they were talking to their employees about this, right? So uh, my concern about this is that what we are probably getting, going to get in the U.S. is decisions driven by the experience of the people at the top, which is quite different than the experience of people further down, right? Uh, And some of that is, you know, is not malintent, you know? They really might think that being back in the office had some real advantages. You know, you can schmooze with people and see them and all that's fun and you get more support and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, being at home is not that big a plus. It's just irritating if your kids are around. Um, But, you know, people with resources have more support at home. You know, they might have a stay-at-home spouse. They may have paid help who can do things for them. People further down don't have that, probably don't. So, you know, the experiences are quite different. So that's a slightly disappointing thing is that the lessons that we are learning here might not be the right ones um, because we don't quite understand our experiences are so different. And that's happening, I think, in part because we're not talking to each other and that you know, frankly, at least in the U.S., all this falls on the business leaders because they have all the power, right? We don't have, for example, unions that are pushing in the other direction against them. We don't have political leaders who are taking up the cause of of the workers and forcing the employers to listen to them. So, you know, in the U.S. anyway, if employers aren't thinking about this and doing it, it's not going to happen. And and here probably I'm asking you to, to speculate. Would this be the the seed, the, the, the kernel for a larger change in the office later on? 
this insatisfaction and this frustration and and having not having had the experience and then not being able to capitalize on it could this be something that eventually leads to to something else well i think the as you were saying earlier you know the the issue is what's the mechanism that drives change right so um if enough employees quit and there are other employers who would seize on this i think you know and that is okay we'll let you work from home remotely and i understand that uh, that's happening in some places um then the employers who don't want to accommodate that will really suffer. I don't think we have a tight enough labor market for that to happen yet. And I don't think there are enough of those employers who are saying, sure, you can work remotely, just come on down. Um, that's why we're seeing these changes industry by industry is because they tend to make the same decisions, partly because they're looking at each other to decide to decide what to do. So, you know, I, I think the broader question I think you're asking is, is there, uh, is the disaffection that enough employees might feel going to change anything? You know, the problem in the U.S. is that there's no mechanism for it, right? If you're a white collar worker, you can't even join a union. Uh, you can't be unionized if you're a white collar worker. Uh, is there enough political will to make this happen? Well, I don't know. You know, the there's no employee lobby the way each industry has their lobbies talking to the to the employers. So um, and I think one of the things I've been, as you can tell, quite interested in is to what extent the ideology or the prior views of people in leadership tend to drive everything. You know, we are seeing at the moment, I think, um, moves away from empowering employees uh, and back toward sort of more optimizing thinking. You know, let's let the engineers decide how to organize things rather than the frontline workers, you know, um, because it sounds like the smart thing to do. Right? Um, so I don't know that that it has the, even if there's the interest to do it differently, I don't see that there's a mechanism for it to, to happen other than a tight labor market where smarter employees might gain some advantage by giving people the opportunity to, to do this. You know, one thing though on this just a little further is that one of the changes I think is that many people started to figure out that they could, because they had to get by with less money. And uh, you know, this has caused some people to not go back into the workforce yet. Um, and uh, some of this early on may have been because of government payments, but those stopped a long time ago now, maybe six months, five or six months ago. Um, and, you know, that's an, an issue that's become a political issue, right? Because the employers are very upset about this, that people are not coming back to, to work and are trying to figure out ways to kind of make them come back. And, you know, in some states, they persuaded the governors to stop those payments because they thought the payments were keeping people out of work. But there are other things that people are doing that are not policy related, you know, and um, that might make them less susceptible to market pressure. And if employers want them to come back, they might have to, you know, do some more things about it because they're not as desperate for a job. Coming back to the idea of of of, uh, of inequality, and um, it would seem that um, women have had a higher cost or or shared uh, had shared um, a, a, a much greater um, weight of. Of the of of this process, uh, and, uh, one of them is is you know not being able to to have childcare either as as such or, or or in primary school or having to keep on a job or part of a job while still supervising what what children are doing behind a, a screen. You know, um, although this is from an employee perspective, I, doesn't this create an, an issue? For, for employers? Yeah, uh, and I think that uh, issue is big enough that it does spill over to the political arena. You know, the 
The big problem there especially was, as you say, shutting down childcare and shutting down schools. Uh, when we shut down schools, you know, maybe the kids were safer, but the uh, problem for parents was enormous. And one of the things that, you know, concerned a lot of people was the labor force participation rate of women, just basically, are they out of the job market, uh, jumped quite a bit, <clears throat> despite, you know, the ability to work from home in lots of places, because they just couldn't do both. You know, you couldn't take care of your kids at home and try to work a full-time job remotely, especially if your spouse or your husband is also trying to work a full-time job. So it was, really became three jobs, you know, and so they, they quit, stopped working. Um, so, you know, that's partly why we see this political debate in the U.S. right now about getting people back into schools, and there are conflicting views, you know, the kids are safer if they're at home, that's true. Uh, but the families are more stressed out if the kids are it's uh, or the kids are home and it's not clear as, if they're learning as much and you know f- fortunately f- uh, I guess for experts I suppose these are ultimately political decisions that get made more by politicians than by experts right and uh, these are longer term issues too and particularly the childcare issues as opposed to the schooling issues right so we have schools already but we don't have childcare that's organized in any kind of good way. It's quite expensive for lower wage workers to uh, enact it and make use of it, right? And are we going to do anything about that? Well, you know, we should, uh, for sure, if you're interested in inequality, even if you're interested in more people being in the workforce, as employer groups at large might be interested in, right? So we have to do something about that. Whether we have the political will to do it, um, not so clear here. Thank you. One next to last uh, question. What about burnout? Uh, what what would be your view on on on, on burnout? Another one. If you care to define it for for everybody. Yeah. No. So I'm not a psychologist, and they've got quite distinct views on what this means, uh, what these terms mean. But uh, you know, I think that the common usage is just oh, too much work and too much stress. And I don't think that working from home created that. What created it was working from home and having kids at home, especially, that that was what was causing burnout. So it wasn't something the employers could by themselves do much about, right? It it was having to do, as we were saying early, three jobs, you know, two parents working, and then this third job of trying to manage kids who would otherwise be in school. Uh, And and I think that was the big factor in in burnout. I think for people who didn't have kids, um, it was not necessarily such a big deal. There were some scheduling issues working from home, you know, that um, uh, people felt often that the work hours were extended into the evening because their bosses were maybe available then and, and such. Uh, but I think generally the view is that work from home in some way can reduce burnout uh, because it reduces in normal periods some of the work-life balancing challenges, you know, of, you know, I have to see the doctor today, but I don't have time to do it because uh, I have to go into the office. But if I'm working from home, you know, I can take an hour uh, and two, maybe off, uh, and go to see my doctor, come back, finish my work and away I go. Right. Um, and I can let the contractor in and I can do my grocery shopping and come back and finish my work. So I think the general interest in work from home is that it might do something to reduce burnout by allowing people the time and flexibility to balance some of these other demands on their time. And and I, I think they're right. For sure. It can't hurt. And, you know, the interest in these hybrid models, hybrid just basically means something other than all in the office or permanently remote, right? But most of the hybrid models are about giving people more choice. Most everybody as an employee would like that. It's hard to see a downside to having more choice. The problem is on the employer side, how to make sure that that might actually work for you or at least not cost you a lot. Uh, And I think that's where the employers have not quite gotten their hands around 
how it might not be a burden for them. And, you know, if it is a burden for them, they're just not inclined to do it. And that's the, that's the problem. Thank you very much, Peter. Well, one final question. What, what is the project that you're working on now or that your, your next big project? Well, you could probably get a sense of it from what I was uh, saying. I've been writing a book uh, that I actually st was in the middle of when I wrote this work from the uh, work from home book, uh, Future of the Office. And that was a broader story about what has happened to the way people are managed in uh, in the workplace. And that and now, at least in the U.S., it is so different from the textbook descriptions Uh, uh, that we always teach people about how you should do things. So, for example, if you look at hiring, uh, the way hiring actually works is that a lot of employers just reach out and grab people. They're not looking for a job. If half the people who reported moving last year said they weren't looking. Somebody came and got them. We don't do very sophisticated efforts to screen people. We're also not looking to see whether the hiring actually works. Do our practices lead to better employees? We've got, in a nutshell, kind of a very stripped down, very simple, very cheap approach to managing people that probably doesn't work. I mean, we can see lots of ways in which it is costly, like not paying attention to whether you're hiring good people, right? Uh, lots of ways in which it's costly. And it seems to me all driven by uh, not financial issues per se, but kind of financial accounting concerns. And some of it is driven by management and executive ideology, particularly the return of this view about optimization and thinking about people as, you know, kind of in terms of engineering right? and data science contributes to this. Right. So so we're seeing a kind of perverse in some ways um, trend in management that cuts against all the things that we learned over the last hundred years about why humans are not like machines, right? And why empowering people is actually helpful and useful and why simply telling them what to do and giving them formulas to follow all the time actually just backfires on you. They burn out, they do terrible work, et cetera. So uh, we're pushing back in the other direction. And so this is a book about why that's happening. It's, you know, as you can sort of tell, it's a big story and kind of an ambitious story to tell. So. Uh, it's going to be a lot longer than the book you just read. Well, uh, I will be looking forward to, to it when it's out, and hopefully we can have you back at the New Books Network to, to talk about it in, in, when, when it's ready. Yeah, um, thank you. In, in, in the meantime, uh, Peter Capelli, thank you very, very much for being with us at, in, New Book, in NBN, and um, wish you all the best. Um, for our listeners, if you are not a subscriber, please subscribe. And if you are a subscriber, then do leave us a comment. We love to hear from you. Uh, thank you very much. And until next time.